everybody, it's Bina007 back with a bumper edition of Movie Reviews, covering five films that really are the pick of the independent cinema releases out in the UK last week and this week. I'm going to start off with an Oscar-winning film called A Fantastic Woman, follow with an equally compelling film with an equally strong, inspiring woman at its centre, a documentary called Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story. After that, I'm going to move into one of the best films I saw in 2017, a violent, provocative, beautiful Australian Western called Sweet Country. And then into two more problematic films, a documentary about the chap who apparently inspired the character Rambo called Erase and Forget. And finally, the latest film from Lynn Ramsey starring Joaquin Phoenix called You Were Never Really Here. Okay, so let's start with A Fantastic Woman. This is a film that actually showed at the London Film Festival 2017, but sadly I couldn't fit it in with all the other films I was watching. But it's truly a magnificent and moving film. It begins with a very touching and beautiful portrait of a very warm and compelling love affair between Marina and Orlando. And they share a life together. Quite simply, they are in love. And then one day, very early on in the film, Orlando has a heart attack and dies. And he sustains bruises as she tries to get him down to the the stairs, into the car, into the hospital. And so we now find Marina at the centre stage of the film in a deep state of grief for the man she loves. But it's a grief that in contemporary Santiago, and perhaps anywhere yet, is not permissible or acceptable because Marina is a trans woman. So when the doctor is treating her lover, she has to stand outside in an area that is labelled dirty area as a direct translation, which is the first of many insults she will suffer. Orlando's family, his ex-wife, his children won't allow her to the funeral. At one point, a woman says, but my, my daughter will be there. As if somehow the very existence of Marina should be scandalous and inappropriate for children to see. The police, who are presumably acting on Ernest's good intentions, think that the relationship might have been commercial. Can't possibly be real love, can it? Um, And then they think it might be abusive because of the bruises and they don't know whether it's that Marina's beating up Orlando or that Orlando's beating up Marina because of course the typical pattern must be that a trans woman is physically abused. It can't just be a genuine beautiful love story. I think the worst thing is although she suffers many physical and emotional abuses The worst thing is kind of people who just don't really think she's there. She's somehow an illusion, fantastic in the literal sense of the word, something of a fantasy, something that's outside of the norm. And she's told that at one point, you know, we had a normal life together. Your relationship is something of a soap opera. But she is, as the film goes on, brutalised more and more. It gets to a point of violence from the family that I won't describe because I think it's more powerful if you come across it in the film. And essentially what we have is a portrait of a woman in a deep state of grief, which should be enough for us to deal with, right? But suffering 
every kind of abuse and it's it's kind of like a, an emotional death by a thousand cuts because everyone who says the stuff that's so hurtful is doing so in a completely stable voice, a stable tone. There's no angry sort of violent clashes. It's just a quiet, civilized set of put downs and all the more brutal for that, I think. And this, this very realist portrait of just the indignities that Marina has to suffer is contrasted and no wonder she does this, her retreating into a kind of fantasy life where then she truly is fantastic and is in this sort of neon lit disco world of, um, you know, power, you know, her being depicted as a woman who can almost have superpowers and get through this. And she can see again her, her dead lover and that contrasts with this brutal reality, this contemporary world that just does not have a place for her. I think A Fantastic Woman deserves the best foreign language Oscar. It's a truly brilliant film. That it is as powerful as it is owes much to the quiet nobility of Daniela Vega's lead performance and really quite exceptional direction by Sebastian Leila, who made the film Gloria, some of you might have seen before. I love the contrast between the sort of clean sharp coloured Santiago, very crisp, very modern, very clean, very clinical, um, almost too clinical in a way, right? It's it's very unflexible. It won't accept Daniela's existence. And the contrast between that and the sort of disco neon world of the dreams, it's, it's a really cumulatively powerful film and it really deserves your attention. And it could not be more appropriate at this time. So A Fantastic Woman has a running time of 104 minutes. It's rated R in the USA and 15 in the UK for strong language and discriminatory behaviour. The film played the London Film Festival, as I said, and won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It's out in the UK and Ireland right now. Um, you can also get it on streaming services as well as going to the cinema. And with that, on to the story of another very fascinating woman who somehow didn't fit into society's conventions of what a beautiful woman should be. And that is the Hollywood starlet Hedy Lamar in the film Bombshell. So this is a really beautifully put together, concise documentary about a woman who really felt trapped, I think, by her beauty and her reputation for making a very racy film early on in her career. She was put by Hollywood in a certain box, exploited and then discarded and was utterly unappreciated for her intellect. So Hedy was born in 1914 in Vienna to a middle-class Jewish family. Her beloved father encouraged her interest in machinery. She used to take apart toys and put them back together again, fascinated by inventions and mechanics. But as a teenager, she turned out to be stunningly beautiful and in decadent pre-Angelus Vienna, felt free enough to express herself, um, to have nude photos taken. And she appeared in a really notorious film called Extaz or Ecstasy, in which she appears nude and fakes an orgasm on screen. All this before she turns 20. <laughs> so she marries a rich industrialist and becomes a trophy wife. And I think it's just bored out of her brains. He's also selling armaments to the Nazis. So this is the period where Austria hasn't yet been taken over by the Nazis, but it's very clear the direction in which the country's going. So she literally runs away and escapes to England and then on to America and is put under contract by Louis B. Mayer. 
and really goes from one kind of captivity, luxurious captivity to another. Because in the old contract system, you just had to appear in the films that the studio wanted you to be in. And she wanted to be an actress who was taken seriously like a Catherine Hepburn. But she was just put in parts where she would look beautiful and smouldering and glamorous and sexy, very much pigeonholed and could never get the respect that she thought she deserved. So while she had one or two hits and, and definitely achieved stardom, she didn't have a sort of sustained career and fell on to rather hard times. And of course, at this point, not only hard times, a single mother after a failed second marriage, one of many marriages that are going to take place. But she's also addicted because in those days when the Hollywood system was easing you, they would give you drugs to keep you up, drugs to bring you down. And that addiction continued. What's really absolutely tragic is this woman who never really wanted to be judged by her beauty and wanted to be seen by her brains, tried to produce films herself, did produce films herself, but not successfully, was bucking against the system, trying to be more than just a pretty starlet in the end, succumbed to Hollywood's valuation system. What I mean by that is that Hollywood values what's young and beautiful. And by the end, Hedy did too. She became addicted to plastic surgery, mutilated her beautiful face, and then became a recluse and died alone because she was pushing away people that she thought would only judge her by her looks because after all, that was her experience. So that alone That story is alone so fascinating and so worth our time in the context of the Me Too movement and what's been happening in Hollywood. This is telling you about a woman back in the day who was chewed up and exploited by the system and yet was a fierce uh, proto-neo-feminist, proto-feminist, I guess, and knew that she was worth more and perhaps didn't express it as she might have done because, you know, we're humans and we're complicated, but really to try. That could give you 90 minutes of documentary. But on top of that, Hedy is incredibly smart. And even if she left school at 16, had this talent, this genius for invention. And with the composer, George Anthal, created a radio frequency hopping concept. And the idea was it was World War II. She wanted to be patriotic to her newly adopted country, America, and to save her family in Austria from the Nazis. So she decided that the Battle of the Atlantic was going terribly because American submarines were, um, sorry, German submarines were torpedoing American and Allied ships. And the problem was is that the, the Allied ships couldn't talk to their torpedoes without the frequencies getting jammed by the German subs. So they needed a method of secure communication. And Hedy created a concept of frequency hopping, but that couldn't easily be jammed. With George Anthal created a system, kind of using old pianola paper rolls, of how you could get both ship and torpedo to be synchronized in their communication. It's such a clever concept. It's kind of simple, but brilliant. And it's the concept that should have saved the war effort in the Battle of the Atlantic. But the Navy just sat on it and they 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 actually took the patent off her because she was an alien, quote unquote. And yet when they needed her to sell war bonds, she was American enough. And the patent fell out of disuse and she never got any money for the fact that she had invented the concept that underlies Wi-Fi and Bluetooth communication. It's really quite something when you consider how much of our modern communications rests on an invention by Hedy Lamarr. I feel that this documentary 
it's, it's very well put together and it's very concise. And it's almost like it just highlights all the different provocative themes that are encapsulated in Hedy Lamar's life. And it has really whetted my appetite. I now want to see lots of her films. I want to find some good books. I want to go onto Amazon and see if I can find good biographies. I feel that every aspect of her life could could get another documentary. And insofar as it does that, insofar as it provokes thought about all these deeply provocative issues, you know, what it means to be an immigrant, to have your patriotism questioned, what it means to be a woman who wants to contribute both to filmmaking and to uh, science and to be just tossed aside because you don't fit the role of what people expect of you. The idea of psychological, emotional trauma imposed upon you from drug misuse and a persona, a Hollywood image that you feel you have to live up to. I mean, these are just so brilliant and so interesting and fascinating. This this documentary doesn't have all the answers. It's a very quick taster, but my goodness, it's fascinating. So I'd highly encourage you to see this. And actually with A Fantastic Woman is a superb double bill. So Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story, has a running time of just 88 minutes. The film is rated 12A in the UK for modest sex references and nudity. It was released in the USA and Spain last year and was released in the UK uh, this weekend in cinemas and on-demand services. So if you have Sky TV, for example, you can rent it in the Sky store. It will be released in Germany on March 22nd. Okay, so two fantastic films so far, but very centred on the female experience and the persecution one faces if you don't fit the bill. Continuing that latter theme, um, I give you Sweet Country, which is a beautiful, brilliant, searing, painful, violent, oh, just amazing film. One of the best I saw last year at the BFI London Film Festival. It really t- knocked me for six and it took me a couple of days to digest it, a bit like the Hedy Lamar story and just makes you think about it, oh, just resonates and echoes and comes back and creeps up on you, which I love about the best filmmaking. So the film is set in post-World War I Central Australia on a series of small cattle farms. The hero is an Aboriginal cattle farmer called Sam Kelly, played by Hamilton Morris, who's a really decent man. And he works for another decent man, a station owner called Fred Smith, played by the wonderful Sam Neill. And, you know, as a side note, if you ever want a very quirky Twitter account to follow, follow Sam Neill on Twitter. These two men have a real mutual respect. Um, They live in sympathy with each other. And that is highly unique in this wilderness that is really riven by racism and racial injustice. And the, the kind of the action of the film begins when a soldier comes back, played by Ewan Leslie, and he manipulates Friend into lending him Sam, his wife and his niece, to work for him for a few days. And this good turn that that Sam, that Fred does as a neighbour, just turns into a horrible situation where Sam ends up shooting the white man in self-defence and going on the run. And that's sort of Act One on the film. Act Two sees Sam, the Aboriginal family, being chased down by the local lawman, who's played by Brian Brown. And then Act Three of the film sees uh, Sam, this guy who's on the run face whatever justice a black man can possibly get in 1920s Australia 
I don't want to say more because I don't want to ruin the plot, but it's a classic Western, you know, it's a classic Western that starts off with an act of provocation and violence, a man on the run against a brutal but beautiful landscape and this concept of what is outlaw justice and what is frontier justice. There's so much to admire in this film, it's really hard to know where to begin. Um, The director, Warwick Thornton, some of you might have heard of for Samson and Delilah, which is another fantastic movie. He really has this unique interest in bringing Australia's alternative history to the screen, in showing the violence and exploitation that mainstream textbooks and history books don't really focus on. Um, Instead of Ned Kelly, he wants to give us a real true indigenous hero sam kelly deliberately named and i guess what he's provoking with this film is the question of would an aboriginal man in australia face any better justice today what i think is amazing about this film and also our fantastic women is while they definitely are focusing on a minority and talking about societal injustice against them, they don't come across as heavy-handed, pedagogical, earnest, agitprop, right? I mean, they work as films. They are emotionally involving. They are tense. They, They draw us into this world and carry us with it. And, you know, that's what I love. I love when a film works emotionally and viscerally as well as intellectually. And I think with, with Warwick Thornton, what that means is he has this amazing visual style. He makes really bold choices with colour, um, with the way he frames things, with his uh, the way in which he shows violence, his use of quick flashbacks and flash forwards to add nuance to his characters, to build suspense for the audience. It's actually kind of, it really does resonate with me with what I saw in A Fantastic Woman and the way in which that uses fantasy sequences to draw the audience into the inner life of the character. Both of these devices, the the move into fantasy and the move in different linear spaces in Sweet Country, give us added depth and richness to our understanding of the characters in the film. And in a sense, in Sweet Country, there is a real humanity to it. So a little bit like Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, the bad guy, quote unquote, in this film is a racist bully, but he's also a war veteran who's self-medicating with a lot of alcohol. Um, you know, so there's, there's a there's a symmetry, there's an even handedness to the compassion in this film, which I really admire. Like I said, technically, I love the use of colour framing, the flash forwards and flashbacks. It's also a really equally bold choice to have no musical score in the film, which is very unusual. So what they do is they ramp up the tension and they have amazing sound editing, actually. Sort of every footstep, every shackle that's locked and unlocked, every cocked rifle. It's a very tense film. Uh, But most of all, it's just the landscape, as with all Westerns, you know, they live and die by how you depict the brutality and the sheer scope of the world in which you're living. So this is a fantastic film. I would really encourage you to watch Sweet Country. It takes you into worlds that you cannot imagine and drips with humanity, but it's also it's just powerful filmmaking on a technical level. And kudos to Sam Neill and... Hamilton Morris. Fantastic performances and a really great film. So Sweet Country has a running time of 110 minutes. It played Venice, Toronto, Adelaide and London 2017. 
It's rated 15 for strong violence, injury detail and racism as a theme. The movie was released earlier this year in Australia and Norway. It's on release in the UK and Ireland on this weekend and goes on release in the USA on April 6th. Um, all the Americans who love westerns, you really do have to check it out. Okay, so after three really fantastic films, let's move into a couple that were, you know, a less than compelling. Let's just say that. The first is Erase and Forget, which is a documentary um, by a chap called Andrea Luca Zimmerman. It's about a Vietnam vet turned TV personality called Bo Gritz. It's a really dissatisfying, disorganized documentary. I really felt it didn't get under the skin of its subject. In the filmmaker's defense, that may be because Bo is a clever construct. He's this sort of fantastical and mythical character that is designed to appeal to the worst of America's macho militaristic culture. I suppose in that respect, um, as much as the first three films that I've talked about are deeply relevant because they talk about people who have been um, persecuted, then this is a great counterpart, right? Because it shows you the type of culture that is persecuting them. The facts, insofar as we know about them, are that Gritz was a soldier at Vietnam. He killed hundreds of people using very questionable methods. He trained the Mujahideen in Nevada. He accuses the US government of selling drugs in Southeast Asia and played conciliator with a white supremacist, even offering up a Nazi salute. Oh, yes. I think it's also an implied fact that some of this must haunt him because he recently tried and failed to commit suicide. Um, so this could actually be a really fascinating documentary, right? This picture of a very ethically questionable but mentally fraught individual. But the problem is, is that there's a sort of Bogritz avatar that sort of lies on top of that superficially as this kind of macho man of daring do. Um, he cons Clint Eastwood and William Shatner into giving him money to rescue, rescue US POWs left behind in Vietnam. But he doesn't rescue them because they probably doesn't, don't exist. So he's basically a con man. He then sells this tale of a thing that did not happen to a movie studio and it becomes Rambo 2, um, which is a shame because that macho gung-ho Rambo 2, Rambo is so different to the absolutely traumatized, vulnerable man in first blood. You get the feeling that Bo is so open with the media and indeed this documentary because he just loves the attention. He's a bit of a narcissist. And, you know, <laughs> he even went for a presidential run and he seems to like revel in having a kind of messianic status. So Bogritz is indeed a fitting subject for a doc and maybe given the current US president uh, a very timely one. It tells us a lot, I think, about what values American society chooses to believe in and what it chooses to forget. But I think that the documentarian never really gets to grips with Bo. They never really put him on the hook for his past, his lies, the Nazi salute. They let him wriggle off the hook. And there's also this kind of weird feeling I had all the way through the documentary, a bit like listening to the podcast serial, that the subject of the doc was playing the director, that the director was never really in control of the material. And I think the overall feeling I had was queasiness, that this man who was deeply unpleasant and had done some pretty horrific stuff 
was being given this platform. So I really wouldn't encourage you to watch this documentary. However, if you, if you do love the Rambo films, it probably has some interest. And I think there is a sort of macabre side to it that tells you something about that kind of Trumpian narcissism that we see in public life today. So Erase and Forget, it's problematic. It has a running time of 90 minutes. It's rated 18 in the UK for graphic images of real dead bodies and injury, which tells you pretty much everything you need to know about the man. The film played Berlin 2017 and the BFI London Film Festival and was released in the UK on March 2nd. Okay, so after that rather distasteful documentary, we get to an equally distasteful film called You Were Never Really Here, which again was shown at the BFI London Film Festival last year and I must say had a rather tough time with it, which is weird actually because the director Lynn Ramsey made you made the film We Need to Talk About Kevin, which I thought was really quite spectacular. And um, it stars Joaquin Phoenix, Elle Fanning, actors that I really admire, but oh, I don't know. So <laughs> You Were Never Really Here is a kind of extreme revenge thriller. Joaquin Phoenix plays an extremely disturbed man, as is often the case, who was abused by his father as a child and takes care of his mother as an adult. He's also a veteran and is probably, like the original Rambo in First Blood, quite traumatised by that. He earns a living rescuing people for money, and his weapon of choice is a blunt hammer, which obviously is going to lead this film to have a lot of particularly brutal personal graphic violence. At the start of the film, he's commissioned by a politician whose wife's just committed suicide to find their runaway daughter, who's been captured by a paedophile ring. So he tries to stage an exfiltration. It's messed up by some corrupt cops. At that point, the film just goes into brutal revenge thriller mode, um, involving potentially some politicians, maybe the idea that the dad has been molesting the daughter. The film's really tricksy with its timeline and motivations and how far we can trust the slippery memory of its lead character. So it's hard to know truly whether he's kind of projecting his own childhood onto this kid or you know, just what in fact is going on. You know, I love independent cinema. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, the the choices that I've covered this week show that. But even for me, this film just felt kind of too art house, bizarre. It was just all over the place and really difficult to follow. Um, just, <laughs> you know, too obtuse for its own good, I think. That said, the cinematography is fantastic. The way in which Lynn Ramsey uses extreme close-ups and the way in which some things are actually shot from the victim's point of view, sort of looming up at a killer, is really effective. And, you know, there's a use of mirror imagery, lights through rain, blurred images, beautiful and impactful shots of underwater scenes. So in a sense, this is a film that you kind of want to have as a tash and coffee table book rather than as something that you have to endure in the cinema. The other thing to be said about it is that the score by Johnny Greenwood is just unique, dramatic, fantastic. Um, it's it's really superb. And there's a really beautiful use of juxtaposition where you have some quite twee music that juxtaposes with some very violent scenes that works really brilliantly. That, in a sense, reminded me a lot of the best of Park Chan-wook's uh, films and some of the Vengeance trilogy especially the use of music with the violence. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if Lynn Ramsey's been watching 
a lot of that and also some of the David Lynchian use of music against violence so I don't know with you were never really here I think I kind of want to watch it again maybe I did find it very obtuse very very difficult um maybe that's a good thing but there is a lot to love in the way in which it's put together so maybe it's worth a go on a big screen you were never really here has a running time of 85 minutes it's rated 15 for strong violence injury detail and child sex abuse as a theme it played Cannes, where it won Best Screenplay alongside The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and Joaquin Phoenix won Best Actor. Um, it also played the London Film Festival, as I said. It opens this weekend in the UK and Ireland, and in on April 6th in the USA. So that's been a lot of films this week. Um, as I said, A Fantastic Woman, Bombshell, sweet country and maybe even you were never really here are definitely worth your time i think a raise and rewind is much more tricky but whatever you watch at the cinema this weekend i hope you have fun and feel free to leave a comment either on the blog at beena007.com you can tweet me at beena007 you can find me on youtube i'd love to hear from you thank you for listening